Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Welcome to Jazz Shapers, bringing the pioneers of the business world together with the musician shaping jazz, soul and blues. For this final Jazz Shapers of the season, we have a special encore edition. We welcome back a past business shaper, John Lord Bird, MBE, founder and editor-in-chief of the Big Issue Group, the street paper and social enterprise helping people in poverty to earn, learn and thrive. John last joined me back in 2014 and I can tell you my youngest child is incredibly excited that I'm meeting him again today. Born into poverty and experiencing as a child homelessness and time in care, adversity continued in John's teens as he served time in a young offender's institution for stealing. But there he learnt to read, write and the basics of printing, which would lead to him starting his own printing and publishing business and to launch in 1991 The Big Issue, a street paper aiming to decriminalise the homeless by, as he says, creating a way for people to earn money without getting into trouble. Now an activist, publisher and crossbench member of the House of Lords, Lord Bird is the driving force behind the Big Issue Group, which, as well as the world's most successful street magazine, also runs Big Issue Invest, a social investment arm that's invested £400 million into over 500 social enterprises and Big Issue Recruit, a specialist recruitment service, and more to boot, by the way. Nine years have passed since I met you. It's great to see you. You look exactly the same. Thank you. I've been told to say that. Yes, and I was told to say that you don't. <laughs> there you are. You're looking old I'm and t- haggard. I feel old and haggard. It's been a tough old road. You must have more children or something. I've got loads more children. In nine years for you, what's changed? What's better now than when I met you? I think I could honestly say I'm more assured of what I need to do and what I should do and what I'm doing. I, in between meeting you last time, I'm now in the House of Lords which I had been volunteering, because you volunteer as a life peer. I'm a crossbencher, so I'm not politically appointed, nor has anybody... I haven't put a shed load of money in any of the political parties' coffers. Mm. I applied, and in 2014, they were sending me letters to say, next year we might consider you. And actually, the year afterwards, I then was considered. The reason I was applying for getting into the House of Lords... It's largely started off with being cheesed off with people saying, John Bird, you're such a brilliant person because you can think outside the box. And people kept saying that and saying that and saying that. And I thought, in the end, one middle of the night once, I thought, the only reason that they're saying that is because the box isn't working. So actually, government, which should be a mechanism for bringing social transformation, social equality, for the eradication of poverty and all that, was just doing a pretty half-assed job. So I thought, I've got to get in there because I want to dismantle poverty. I'm sick and tired of watching the world getting too hyperventilated over making the poor a bit more comfortable. 80% of all the money that's spent on poverty is spent on emergency and coping. Nothing or very little on prevention and cure. So that was the reason I went into the House of Lords. So the big difference is Mm. I'm in the House of Lords. I've been in six, nearly seven years, and it is like pulling teeth. 
the vast majority of people in the House of Lords that I work with and know are honourable and straightforward. There are people I don't meet and I don't know. So there's probably a coterie of probably 300 of us who kind of work together and all that stuff. But I am the only one who, in my opinion, knows that there's no point in carrying on unless we dismantle poverty. And in fact, I was involved in a BBC film first year of the Lords or a year in the Lords and I imagined taking out of my pocket a flick knife and I went up to the reporter and I said when they asked me what I went into Parliament for I said to slit the throat of poverty and it didn't make the uh, the final <laughs> cut or whatever it was but I'm really driven to always you know saying does this bring us anywhere nearer to ridding the world of poverty and not simply just moving the deck chairs, so to speak, ameliorating the lives of the disenfranchised. And politics gets a tough gig, right? and you're in it now, and you're right. You have to be inside the system to affect it, I would argue, and you've came to the same conclusion. Has it gone beyond the words, John? Have you been able to make progress? And if so, give me an example where you go, I changed something and it's better. Well, one of the first things we did was a credit worthiness bill, which actually did not get on the statute book, so it didn't become law, but it did change things, and it changed the argument. Sometimes you have an argument in Parliament where you put forward a private member's bill, and it doesn't go anywhere, but it ups the game, it ups the discussion, it broadens the discussion outside of Parliament as well as inside Parliament. So we had a we had this credit worthiness bill and it was all based on a terrible reality that if you have got a mortgage, then your credit worthiness is greater than if you are a rent payer. Now, you could be paying your rent abstemiously for year after year after year and the credit agencies would not award you credit because of that. And therefore, it was a kind of class divide between the renters and the mortgage holders. So we reran that. It ran into a few problems. One of the problems was that you had to surrender your rent details to a third party, i.e. to a credit agency. So if you go into Carphone Warehouse and you want to buy something, you've got to tell them, why would we lend to you? Because you've got to fill in all those forms. So there was a problem like that. There was quite a number of people who were not happy about people surrendering rent details who them, who had a bad rent record. I was saying all along, look, they're not going to do that. You're not going to go into Carphone Warehouse and say, look, I haven't paid my rent for three months. Can I have that thing? So there was a kind of boneheaded, I think, a bit of an ideological divide. But the thing was, it led the Treasury mm. to create a competition to find what's called a fintech solution to that and that is what actually came out so we got the treasury to spend i think in the region of about three million pounds to run this fintech and there has been a fintech solution so it's actually pushed the whole argument forward it's not entirely resolved no. but now more and more credit agencies will look say so, so you're a renter give us your details so, so change, we, changes on the way yeah now that's the other interesting thing, and I'm sorry to go on here, the government's going to get rid of the, the Vagrancy Act. Now, the thing about the Vagrancy Act, it's been around since 1824, 
which, as you know, is almost 200 years. Next year, it's 200 years. And the thing is that it has been ignored for, for decades, and every now and then it's used. So people get very hyperventilated because there's something on the statute books that said you can't do something. If it gets ignored, then why worry about it? And I've said to the government yesterday, if you're going to take the next year before you actually bring in the ending of the Vagrancy Act, why don't you just tell all the all the magistrates, ignore it, ignore it. This is what happened in 1963. In 1963, capital punishment really ended, even though it was still on the statute yeah. books. So for two years, they would not execute anybody. And then two years later, when the Labour government got in in 1964, they brought in the law. And so the law caught up with reality. Yeah. John Lord Bird is my business shaper. He's the founder of The Big Issue, the editor-in-chief, editor-at-large. You can kind of call yourself what you like, actually. I could. Well, somebody did say to me that the only reason I started a paper, a publication, was to get published because nobody would publish any of my crap. <laughs> uh, so that was very... That well, was my ex-wife. She said, you only started this because no one else would publish anything. But you know what? Platforms are interesting, aren't they? In, in a way, you learnt the hard way that you you needed a voice and you found your way through that. And I guess on one level, she, your, your ex-wife was kind of joking, but on another level, that's exactly what the big issue gave you. Yeah, well, it gave me the... I was the first person to have a voice, but I insisted at the same time we throw that voice out to as many, many homeless people and people mm. in temporary accommodation as possible. And I've always been really, really privileged by the fact that I, in the early days, when, when I was very hands-on, you know, we used to run an academy of young artists, old artists, boozy artists, broken artists, broken writers, people who were getting out of poverty, getting out of need. And I think that's the Academy was a wonderful concept of, of just bringing people on. And though, you know, it comes and goes because unfortunately, you know, people do move on, people die, people get arrested or whatever, they move to other countries. It's an inconsistent It's hard thing. to sustain on yeah. that level. But just going back then to the 90s, what made you do something about it, John? Because there would have been a, a number of people in your with your background who'd experienced what you'd experienced. You just went, that's my life, and I'll keep my head down. I'll earn a bit of money. I found a, a path. I don't have to be a criminal. I, I've got a home. Y you became an activist. What was the thing that made you want to actually do something about the problem? Well, it really started when I was 21 because I was hiding from the police in, in Paris. I used to hide in other cities in the UK, but I started off by hiding in Paris because I'd done a number of you know, small, relatively criminal things. And they were going to throw the book at me and I'd probably get two or three years inside because I had a criminal record that went back to the age of 10 and I was 21. But so I went off to Paris, loaded down with self-importance. I had the most terrible opinions about the world. I'd been brought up to hate black people, hate Jews, hate Indians, hate Arabs, hate French people, hate everybody, even to hate English, because I was brought up in this, you know, kind of very weird Catholic, Irish Catholic family. Now, I'm not saying they're all like that now, but if you go back, there was a lot of racism, mm. a lot of anti-Semitism in the Catholic faith, and, you know, I was one of them. And I went there, 
and I met a haut bourgeois Marxist who just kicked ten colours of crap out of me intellectually, just kept saying, you you know, this rubbish that you're thinking. And within a matter of months, I'd converted to being a Marxist, Engelist, Leninist, Trotskyist, so I became an internationalist. And I became a devout anti-racist, anti-Semitic, all that stuff, really. And I felt I had Suddenly, at the age of 21, I felt I'd grown a foot. I thought my back was straight, I was straight. And I became a kind of a missionary-type person, which made me a bit of a pain to be with because I would always be lecturing people in pubs and all that about the evils of racism or the evils of you know social dislocation. Mm. And I spent years in, a, in this revolutionary group. And that foundation of the way you looked at yeah. the world is what informed actual... I mean, it was the beginnings of actually yeah. doing, doing yeah. something. So after many years of my anti-capitalism Marxism, I realized that I didn't really agree with most of the stuff that was going on. And I wanted to be effective. And there were people in the street. There were people dying in the street. There was people committing crimes in the street because they were poor. And this was getting worse and worse. And I wanted to do something. But the real thing was a moment. I was on the train in Earl's Court Station. And I was sitting there. And suddenly this person let out this enormous roar, this terrible feeling of, of absolute destitution and, and despair. And I went out on the platform, I jumped out of the train and there was this large black guy sitting there, very disheveled, and he was just in absolute agony. And I walked up towards him and then he got up and he just ran up the stairs screaming and all that. And I thought, I've got to do something. And that was, oh, and up till then, I, I had been in two minds as to whether I would do anything that was significant in terms of... of, of Making it, of actually doing yeah. something about it. Stowe for much more from my business shaper today. This is Jazz Shaper's Encore Special. It's John Lord Bird, founder, editor-in-chief of The Big Issue. And he will be back very, very shortly. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. All our former business shapers await you on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again, or Lord Bird's first Jazz Shapers appearance back in 2014. He's returned. He's here. The prodigal son, or the prodigal father, whichever you want to be called, John, I don't mind. Lord Lord Bird MBE, the founder and editor-in-chief of the Big Issue Group, the street paper and social enterprise. So it's one thing wanting to do something, and I see why, and I see that path that came from, as you said, the cult of intellectual awakening and all that. It's another thing running a social enterprise, a business successfully. Here we are 30 years later, and it isn't just the publication. There are a number of other businesses which I mentioned, or whatever you want to call them, ventures. That takes some doing. How have you managed to pull it off? Well, I mean, it all started actually when I was 21 and I met, when I came back from Paris, I was hiding from the police in Edinburgh, uh, and I met a geezer called Gordon Roddick in a pub in Edinburgh, and we became mates and then I didn't see him for 20 years, and he'd started the body shop with him and his wife, Anita Roddick. And Gordon was in New York in uh, 1990, walking through Manhattan, and this guy came up and asked him to buy a street paper, and he said, why are you selling it? And he said, uh, because I've just come out of the penitentiary, and if I don't earn money and 
if I go back to Brownsville, where I come from, I'm going to end up in crime and I, they're going to throw the key away because I've been in and out of the penitentiary and I'm 54 years of age, etc. So Gordon thought it was a brilliant idea because London at the time in 1990 and 91 was full of probably six, seven, eight thousand homeless people sleeping in the West End, sleeping in Lincoln's Inn Fields, sleeping mm. in the Bull Ring down where the big Maxi Cinema is now sleeping along the Aldwych, hundreds and hundreds. I mean, London was a linear dormitory of the dispossessed and failed. There was a need, Gordon saw, to do something that could give homeless people an opportunity of earning their own money and maybe sorting themselves out, not getting involved with mm. the police and work. So he came to me after probably three or six months because he couldn't get anybody interested in this. And most of the homeless organizations were not in a position to actually give people the chance of making their own money because the charity laws then, and I, I think they've changed them, you could do everything for a homeless person, but it was a question of you giving them. Yeah. They couldn't do anything for themselves, like make their own money. And so... He came to me and he said, look, I want you to start it. And I said, well, if I start it, I don't want to start it as a charity because I'm, you know, I'm not a great believer in the power of charities. I'm a great believer in the power of giving people the chance of doing their own thing. And so this is where, you know, a hand up, not a hand out came into being and where uh, we did that. Now, I started with very blinkered eye. I mean, I was very, very limited geezer. I was, I was a, a youngster of 45, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I knew about printing and all that. I knew I wasn't sentimental about homeless people. I didn't cry when I saw them. I could be shocked, but I would keep it to myself. And I, you know, got together a team of people. One of them was my brother, who was brilliant with homeless people, because he just said, you know, I'm going to get you off the streets and we're going to do this for you. And then I gradually brought in other people. I brought in a good editor, uh, Joe Malabar, who became my first editor, a brilliant young woman. I brought in other people who could write. Paul Sussman was one of them, the late Paul Sussman, great geezer, who published a wonderful book, the first big issue book, which was Death by Spaghetti, uh, which was an absolutely wonderful. It sold thousands of copies. And then I met I met a bloke who was a printer like me, and we started to be more businesslike. And we worked together on social brokers, which was finding people with a problem, finding people with a solution, and finding people with money. Mm. So we began to lay the foundation. It's organic. Stones. I mean, a lot of yeah. this is organic. But and and I want to I want to turn to now. But I'm going to pause there because I want to talk. I want you to tell me what the shape of the thing looks like now because it's a much bigger thing and the turnover is bigger and it's more complex. But we're going to hold that thought just for a moment. John Lord Bird is my business shaper. He is synonymous with the big issue. We're hearing, John, about how this thing organically came together then in the 90s. I love the way you said, I met this one, and then I met that one, and he was telling it. I mean, it's a proper community. Uh, it's almost, if we were going back to a Marxist view, it would be the Paris Commune in the 19th century. But it kind of felt a bit like that, but it's a business as well. And here we are, 30 years later, and it's a group. And you've got through COVID, and you've got an investment arm, and you've got the e-bikes arm, and you've got the recruitment arm. This is serious stuff. And and I think what you do very well is you kind of you belie the the rigor with which you 
apply your thought. You sort of, I think you're very gentle with it. You hold it very lightly. But the truth is, you're a serious business person and you've got a serious business. I would not exaggerate my skills as a businessman for the principal reason that I might come up with ideas. But what I've managed to do is almost to build a kind of community of people who come up with ideas. And uh, in some ways, I'm a bit like Steve Jobs, not in having the money or the massive success, but in the sense that he often said, you know, people would do something and he'd look at it and he'd say, I don't like it. And they'd say, so what don't you like about it? He says, well, I'm not so sure. And have you got any idea what I can do? And I said, no, just go away and do it again. <laughs> so that is a kind of, if you can do that with people who half expect it, then you can begin to perfect things. So in a way, what we've managed to do in the big issue is always remember it's the vendor that is the basis of the whole of this wonderful transaction, the vendor out there selling on the street. So we always recommend to people, if you want to help the big issue, go and buy a copy of the big issue, take a copy of the big issue, read it, leave it on a train, give it to somebody else, whatever, but read it, read the contents. Of it's the a really good read style. I mentioned that my daughter was excited, Iris, my youngest, and she was literally giggling with excitement because on our local high street, Western Lane in West Hampstead, there's a, a lovely, different people that come. We buy it, we read it, and it's properly written. You've maintained that integrity of a good read. Yeah. Well, actually, I think I think it's almost got better. Yeah since covid <laughs> covid was a was a reversal of fortune in many many ways but it was the last time we ever where we all turned back into being a very simple community wasn't it i mean everybody was pulling together yeah. even in the village i live in there were people coming and trying to give me spuds because you know i'm an old age pensioner i mean even though you know i'm over the age you look 37 uh, i look 37, thank you. Welcome. But, but the thing was, there, everybody was out, and we were all locally, and, and uh, we, we were all trying to find out who who was lacking so that something could be done. Now, that's the spirit that but we need to rekindle. And I think the magazine has, has got better and better. I thought one of the best issues we had recently was the Charles issue, which was about the coronation, because it didn't slag him off. It didn't say what, you know... Uh, what you we wanted to be constructive, so we talked about Poundsbury, you know that place that he built down in the countryside. Yeah. We looked at their involvement in trying to get rid of the housing crisis. So we talked about the housing crisis, and we talked about what can be expected from the Charles the Third reign and what we would like to see. So it was a very positive issue, and I'm I'm really pleased. So what we've got is we've got these thousands of of ambassadors out on the street. And most of them are doing a pretty good job. And then we have alerted everybody that we're there for social inclusion, social opportunity and all that. So we have created this enormous and very successful social investment business grown out of social brokers. And so Big Issue Invest looks very carefully at, at helping people and, and gets the money to do it. So if you were to look at a map of the United Kingdom, there is not many places that have not been touched 
by the big issue, either through selling or through the investment. We've invested in 500, over 500 social businesses and businesses Amazing. throughout the UK. <clears throat> so we're doing what I have always wanted to do, which is to say that if there are people anywhere in Britain, whatever the conditions, whether it's mental health, whether it's physical health, whether it's the fact that they can't get work, whether they've left the prison, left the care service, I would like to think that there are people like me and like our organization who, who are filling the hole often left by government, but at the same time trying to teach the government to do a much better job so we have to create this alliance with the government and show the government how to look after people who need help and and need sustenance and, and are themselves in a desperate situation. And we're going to come back full circle to politics and Lord Bird's role as the co-chair of the APPG, the all-party parliamentary group, which is called the Business Response to Social Crisis. That's all come up in my final chat with Lord Bird. We've also got a Brazilian classic from Gilberto Gil. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Just for a few more minutes, I'm with Lord Bird, John Bird, for my Jazz Shapers Encore special. We started with activism, we started with politics, and here we are. You've been in the Lords now for a number of years. You've you've taken on the role of saying, I'm going to slit the throat of poverty. Right, I'm going to get it and we're going to sort this out. And you're working through the system. The mar- the Marxist has become part of the system because you have to do that. I'm saying that the person that was interested in, in all of that when you were much younger. Tell me a bit about what that looks like and what you're trying to achieve through this uh, APPG. Well, the thing about the APPG is it, it grows out of the statement that we made back in the launch of The Big Issue, which is we were not a charity. So we were not going to be giving handouts to homeless people because we didn't think that that took them anywhere. You can give people handouts and they remain relying on your beneficence for longer and longer and longer. So we wanted to give people a hand up. So we said we are a business response to a social crisis. We are business-like in the way that we deal with the needs of people who are on the street and who are having all sorts of problems. So that was it. And we saw over the years, over the last three decades, we saw an increasing amount of people setting up social enterprises because we also called ourselves a social enterprise and there weren't many of us around. But the thing is, there are many, many businesses who want to give jobs uh, you know, Timpson's is one of the greatest. So John Timpson was a, was a guest on the show. Yeah, I mean, wonderful geezer, lovely guy. Um, and and what they want to do is they want they want to make a profit, but at the same time they want to make a dent in poverty. They want to do something to get people out of poverty, out of need, and all that. So we found that there was an increasing need for us to identify those businesses so that we could work with them, so that we could actually develop that. Rather than the thing about social enterprises, they're a bit like charities, and I'm not knocking them. I'm just saying they are so controlled by all the kind of things that you have to do to be a social enterprise and and to be a charity. You know, all the rules, because you have to make sure that they're not ripping anybody off. What we just wanted to do was deal with any business, any business that said, 
we're going to be about creating work. We're going to be about giving education. We're going to be about supporting the local community. We're going to be about giving people the chance to get socially mobile out of poverty and all that stuff. So that's why... That's what you're doing. That's, that's the why shape. we're doing it. It's been great chatting to you. We could talk for hours. And thank you again for coming back. Just before I ask you about your song choice and why you've chosen it, just one quick thing. After all these years, John, how does it feel to you now? What is it, all, all the achievements, as it were, being in the Lords, is that what the young man thought his life would look like when he was a young man? Yeah, I mean, I, well, that bloke I knew was, you know, like, like with all of us, I mean, I'm 77, so I've had numerous life's changes and all that. I'm not quite sure who that person was on some occasions or what their motivations were because I think I was very self-destructive. Got into a lot of fights, had three broken noses, got thrown out of pubs, parties and stuff like that. It was just a real pain in the derriere. And I'm not like that, you know, I, because I learned to love people because I was, because I'm a slum boy and, you know, hunger and, and was in and out of the prison system and the youth offenders thing. I mean, I've had a lot of hate and I've certainly got rid of a lot of that. But I would say that what still keeps me going is that I'm always meeting people with answers. And my new bill, which is coming through in the next parliament, my new bill is going to be to try and get the government to create a ministry of poverty because poverty destroys pollutes intention so a government comes in maybe starmer comes in who knows he comes in all the intention he'll say exactly what blair said because i remember it 30 27 years ago he'll say we're going to get rid of poverty we're going to do this and when it's over they'll look back and say well we did something and all that stuff but we still got poverty so the National Health Service, for instance, 50% of its budget is spent on trying to keep the poorest amongst us healthy. So it's actually almost a kind of poverty ministry. It's almost yeah. a poverty NHS. And you look at the school bill, 30% of the school bill is about dealing with poverty in the classroom. You look at the prison bill, it's 90% of people who come from poverty. You look at the social security, it's people. So, so nobody in these various departments know how to deal with poverty. So I want to create a, a poverty ministry and the leading person should be the prime minister. The prime minister should be the minister. So he's got two hats, being the prime minister and being the minister of poverty so that everybody takes it seriously. And what we do is we do something immaculate and brilliant. We bring all the answers that have come that are all out there in the world and put them all together because the political principles and the political abilities of the departments of government to work are shot to pieces. Well, there's, listen, you, you heard it here first, unless you've been saying that for lots, to lots of people. I like it. I, I say you, it to anybody who gives me a fiver. I gave, you, I gave you less than a fiver and you still said it. Thank, Thank you. you so much for your time. It's a brilliant vision and it must be right. Just before I let you go, though, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? I've chosen an Errol Garner song. You could choose any Errol Garner. I have never seen a leading jazz pianist or a leading jazz player. I never saw Thelonious Monk too young for Dizzy Gillespie and all the others and all the people who inspired me 
when I, when I was growing up. When I was sleeping rough, actually, that's where I got to love Thelonious Monk and people like that and, and Art Blakey because I'd go into clubs and listen to all this music and it was wonderful. But Errol Garner is the only one I saw and I saw him at the Hammersmith Odeon a matter of weeks before. I went with a couple of mates of mine who were market traders and I was nearly 18 and it was absolutely brilliant to see Errol Garner, great, great artist. Errol Garner with They Can't Take That Away From Me, the song choice of my business shape today, back for an encore, John Lord Bird. He talked about that visual, very powerful image of the homeless in London, the linear dormitory of the dispossessed and the failed and how that impacted him and what he wanted to do about it. He talked about creating a community in the Big Issue group that can come up with ideas. That's what they do, and that's what he tries to inculcate within all of them. He talks about the power of giving people the chance of doing their own thing rather than giving them charity. And finally, and I love this quote, he talked about how he has learnt to love people and how that's fundamentally changed what he is all about. Absolutely fantastic stuff. That's it from Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend and have a lovely summer. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishcon.com forward slash jazz shapers.